This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 16th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. So we don't lay waste our powers, we should cultivate the ability to control ourselves. But in the modern world, we can fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way like never before. At the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration in May, I spoke with Charles Murray about the good life and how to live it. Current technology, with regard to my own behavior, let alone anybody else's, is that I can entertain myself endlessly in ways that I couldn't before. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh, I would have in the evening a couple of choices. Maybe there would be something good on TV, but probably not. And uh, there was a book I should probably read, and that would be another option to read the book, but there were hours to fill in in the evening. What can I do now? Point number one is, There is great TV that I haven't seen because there is so much great TV, so I can turn that on. And you you can watch everything that's ever been on TV TV for the most part. any time I want to, yeah. And then I can also, if I get bored with that, I like to play chess, so I just go online and I play a game of chess with somebody in the Netherlands, and and that's fun. And then I, I browse the web. I check in my Twitter feed. I could keep this up. I can keep this up. And often I do keep this up indefinitely. And guess what? In doing that, I don't read a lot of the books that I wish I had read. And I would be happy to have read them. And it gets to something that I think your comments uh, alluded to as well. In the short term, yeah, we are kind of lazy. In the short term, we don't necessarily do that thing which we know we will give us give us a lot more satisfaction in the long term. The good thing about life the way it used to be was we didn't have a whole lot of choice. So a lot of us didn't have any choice of getting out of the labor market and staying out of the labor market because if you did that, you were going to starve. Plus, everybody was going to call you a bum and you'd be subject to all sorts of, uh, of stigma. And a whole variety of things now have essentially – subsidized our ability to do things that are fun in the short term, even though they're damaging to us in the long term. So is it getting and spending we lay waste our powers? That is, we're, we're no longer as close to our, – our immediate choices are no longer closely connected to our uh, poverty, our uh, stigma associated with yeah, and I, I guess I'd expand upon that. Our immediately cho- choices are no longer as directly related to the stuff of life in general. Uh, that is, staying alive not not only required that you have a job in the old days, the good old days, which weren't all that good in some respects, but it also required that you be a good neighbor. Uh, because local communities were very important and you you needed to be a good neighbor who was accepted by your community, engaged in your community in part for your own good Uh, because it it was in a community that you had your best chance of surviving in a cruel, hard world. That was also, let's get down to an obvious example, uh, getting married and having kids had an also an immediate, urgent uh, need because, may I be blunt, if you were a male in your early 20s, if you didn't get married, you really didn't have regular access to sex, which is a pretty big deal. 
uh, especially when you're in your early 20s. So that was one real good reason to get married from your point of view. For the woman, the reason it was a really good idea to get married was that having a baby by yourself is not a feasible way to live a life, was not a feasible way to live your life. So there were all sorts of things that hot-blooded youth did that would be good for them in the long term, but the only reason they did them was because there were so many sticks that were out there if they didn't behave that way uh, in, in their hot-blooded youth. Those are all gone away. And, and some of that seems to be that it's to the good. That is that, that if, if there's a different kind of life that you want to live that doesn't involve being in a sense, oppressed by your community or strongly pressured to behave in a certain way, you know, may, uh, to some extent that, that no, reaps benefits. No, th- absolutely. There is an upside as well as a downside. Where I come out is though I want <laughs> – I formerly wanted to grow to old age. I now have grown to old age. Congratulations. Uh, the, yes. Consider the alternative. Uh, being – able to look back on uh, my life and be satisfied with who I've been and what I've done. And I am deeply thankful that I am able to do that, but I'm more conscious than ever of something I wrote first uh, in the late 1980s, which is that there are actually only four domains through which human beings achieve lasting and justified satisfaction with life as a whole, and those are vocation, family, community, and faith. I will say, by the way, that in 1988, when I wrote In Pursuit, the book that made that argument, uh, I left out faith. I mentioned it in passing and said, but this is a book about secular things, so I sort of shoved it under the rug. But anyway, those are the four domains. So I accept everything you say about the downside of oppressive communities and bad marriages and, and, and really awful jobs. And I will also say but. The solution really to that is to find a good community, <laughs> to find to find a good family, a good job, and, and a faith tradition in which you're happy. And freeing people from bad ones should be the prelude of being able to affiliate with good ones, for which freedom is also an enabling condition. We have so many distractions that we've talked about here that are available to us today. Uh, How does that change the importance of developing and inculcating uh, children with uh, character? Uh, That is, that is, you know, no kid really wants to hear your your, a parent say, you know, when you're when you're old and I'm not around, I want you to be able to look back on your life and say. You know, I, I had these wonderful experiences and not that I, played, work that I played thousands of hours of yeah. online chess or I watched uh, every TV show uh, ever <laughs> made. Uh, but it, it seems that the distractions almost make it more important that uh, children at least are understand at a very young age that certain things are worthwhile and certain things are fr- frivolous. Yep. And uh... – that, that goes back to Aristotle's discussion of virtue where he says virtue is not something you teach. Virtue is an acquired habit and you become compassionate by over a long period of time routinely behaving in compassionate ways. You become generous with the same process. You become merciful by the same process and that means doing it from the time you're a kid. 
And I would argue a variety of other things come from not what you are taught as a child but what you see as a child. Take something that is a major problem now, which is young men growing up to be 18 years old and completely unable to function in the job market. Not because they don't have job skills, but because they can't get up every morning at the same time and go to work even though they don't feel like it. They can't uh, deal with a supervisor without getting in a fight, so forth. Well, I don't think you learn that because dad says to you at age five, you got to do this. A boy knows that's what he's supposed to do because he's watched dad do that every morning even when dad didn't feel good. And, and if you grow up and you've never had a dad uh, to watch do that, uh, you don't learn that lesson. If you grow up and you've watched mom do that, but none of the males in your life do that, you sort of draw the wrong conclusion from that as well. The same thing applies to upper middle class families in which they're told to be nice and good, but there is nothing in their daily life where they are engaged with people where they're expected to behave in these virtuous ways because they're dealing with people who I'm thinking of my own childhood in Newton, Iowa. You're, you're, you're around your parents who you see doing things for less fortunate neighbors just as a matter of course. That's what you do to help neighbors who are in trouble. If you've never seen that happen, you never acquire the habit. There doesn't seem to be any uh, endorsable public policy prescription for any of this. It's usually my, what we talk about I'm here. I'm afraid so. that one of my <laughs> most uh, well-worn laugh lines in my speeches at this point in the conversation is, I'm a libertarian and libertarians don't do solutions. And there is a, a hard core of truth to that, especially with the things we're talking about. What do you need in order for families to be rich and vital uh, institutions, you need to have a society in which families have the action that if you don't do certain things as a parent, those things will not get done. That uh, as a community, if you as a community don't do certain things, those things won't get done. That is not calling for active public policy. That calls for inactive public policy, which says, no, the state will not take the trouble out of of thriving families and communities and faith and vocation. In terms of where we stand now, given the world we live in, given that uh, there, there are not going to be any major public policy changes that are going to revitalize these institutions, I think we have to look for a cultural great awakening of some sort. And I have to say that in my view, the the people who have to do the Great Awakening are the upper class. And by the upper class, I refer to the new upper class, which consists of overeducated people like you and me who are uh, uh, participating in a very pleasant upper, upper class culture. That does not mean we have private jets and things like that. It means that we live in this culture that, that all of our friends live in, where we have our own ways of doing things and raising kids and the TV we watch and the radio we listen to and the vacations we take are all the same. But it, see, it seems like a lot of the things that you're talking about are participating in culture, the things that are positive, the things mm -hmm. that, that, that make you happy, the things that provide community 
almost uh, were once necessities and are now you know, are almost luxuries. Yes. Uh, the, the, and, and I guess when I say a cultural great awakening, I'm thinking of the, the, the forces that I think were instrumental in electing Donald Trump, which is that this culture that we live in, people like you and me, uh, is largely isolated from and ignorant about mainstream America. I won't speak to your background, but it is certainly the case that it's really easy for kids growing up in Scarsdale or in any other upper middle class or affluent community to go through college and out into the world without having the slightest idea of what life is like for uh, a, a cafe waitress in uh, Topeka, Kansas. No idea whatsoever. It <laughs> doesn't have any idea what life is like in Topeka, Kansas at all of, of any kind. And as a result of that, there has been a kind of disdain that has grown up among the college-educated elite uh, that, that I think mainstream America caught on to very, very quickly. And that has led also to a lack of seemliness on the part of those of us who are luckiest in this country, whereby we think it's perfectly okay to uh, have 20,000-foot houses if we can afford them, and it's perfectly okay to uh, uh, keep ourselves aloof from the, the rest of society. Now, as a good libertarian, I say there should be no laws against building 20,000-square-foot houses. As someone who loves America's traditional civic culture, I want to say to those people, you've gotten too big for your britches, and you are supposed to celebrate the fact that you're an American with all that means that puts you in common with all other Americans. You aren't supposed to think of yourself and behave, behave as if you were part of an upper class. I think we've got to have a cultural reawakening where the people who are the luckiest people in this country say to themselves, we've gotten too big for our britches. So you're talking about uh, empathy and giving. And affection and look, the American exceptionalism was largely defined by Europeans, not by Americans, who came over here in the 19th century and observed the way our society worked and said, this is really weird. Uh, we have nothing like this in Europe. It led Marx and Engels to say explicitly, uh, forget about trying to have a revolution in the United States. The American working class simply has refused to develop a class consciousness. To me, one of the great things about traditional American civil society was that people thought it being an American was more important than the social or economic class they were in. That's why Americans constantly claimed they were middle class, even though, objectively speaking, they bore no resemblance to a middle class life. I think that was wonderful, and I think it led to a unique civil society. I guess I'm saying that um, the United States is going to be continue to be rich and powerful no matter what happens, just about, and people like you and me will continue to have really nice lives uh, no matter what, but we're in danger of losing the qualities that made America so special. Charles Murray is author of In Pursuit of Happiness and Good Government, Losing Ground, and many other books. You can join us as Cato marks its 40th anniversary at Cato.org, and subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.